Today is October 31st, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian on this spooky Halloween day. Oki Naganago Mekoche Chesto. We're resetting that. I, I can't even believe I'm messing up my own intro and my own spirit name. What the hell? I've done it. <laughs> I've done it myself. Again, you're making me feel so much better. So I'm just going to take this and did this all for me because I'm a Gemini and I'm all about myself anyway. So thank you. Oh my gosh. It's you just so her. funny to me. I just can't even tell you how ridiculous I think. It's not how we would normally start. I think that's what's going, you know, like, we're, it's like, yeah. oh, like even for me this morning, it would have been a smooth start. So even I was like, called my husband. I'm like, I don't understand how to plug something in that I always know how to plug in. Right. So I get it. I get it. Why is everything off? I don't get it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <sighs> Today is October 31st, 2023. Welcome to Native Calgarian on the spooky Halloween night. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chestokom Aki, or Tekotsnago Tine Siku. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson. I use she and her pronouns, and I do prefer non-Indigenous to call me Michelle Robinson. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane has taught me how to pronounce my spirit name in Blackfoot, and Leonard Kenny taught me how to pronounce my name in Satu Dene. My humblest apologies to the Dene and Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Great Bear Lake tribe in Treaty 11. My people wore rabbit skin, so it's been referred to as the land of the hair people. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Pinchotine Indehe in Satu Dene meaning many big dog town named after the Calgary Stampede. I was born in Calgary or Blackfoot Malkinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name that has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. Through my father, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having a Canadian Indian Act and Post uh, status card. That's a colonial construct by Canadian policies meant to divide Indigenous peoples' inherent rights. Indigenous Two-Spirit or the 2SLGBTQ uh, community, Indigenous women are at the bottom of the Canadian socioeconomic ladder because of colonial trauma, imposed poverty, racism, gendered violence, and land theft. According to the 2023 Quality of Life report from the Calgary Foundation, 31% of racialized Calgarians cannot find suitable employment. So I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I do share my journey. As a Dene woman who has attempted to run and join harmful colonial parties, spent money to be at expensive conventions, left my home to travel to those conventions just to vote on incomplete policies that still allow for incarceration and denial of justice and denial of health services, racism, colonial trauma, and genocide of Indigenous and Black peoples, I have worked to continue reports to advocate for and attempt to work within these systems meant to harm me and my community. I think of all of this today, and I hope we honor the many Indigenous lives lost for the so-called country named Canada. I hope you see your role in the importance of stopping harm, and as a citizen, see your role as a treaty partner in reconciliation. Pride Month should never be one month. It's important to understand the straight agenda and gendered violence was and is forced on this land by Christian outsiders. Two-spirit were here first. 
you know, land acknowledgements can be incorporated to create that safer space for the two-spirit and Indigenous to honour the host as the guest, acknowledging your role as a treaty partner in, again, the so-called time of reconciliation. It's actually become a bit of a joke to me now. Um, and it's not funny, but it's just so ridiculous what Canadians think reconciliation is and what it's not. Anyway, it's important that land acknowledgements have meaning. I encourage everyone to introduce themselves with their acknowledgement of their ancestors, stories of displacement, how you perceive your role as a treaty partner, citizen of Canada, refugee, or other land displacement. So we as Indigenous people know who you are, where you come from, and how safe you are to be around. If you won't say your pronouns, your local Indigenous nations names uh, won't acknowledge your story of origin, stolen lands, won't acknowledge imposed economic oppression based on racism, your role in reconciliation. I determine how safe you are to be around my community, my family, and myself. Understanding land acknowledgements and their importance is Indigenous 101 because it immediately addresses colonialism, oppression dynamics, broken treaties, and lies taught today in Canadian schools nationally. That's why settlers and those who call themselves native Calgarians or whatever town you're from, show me that you have no Indigenous 101 understanding. Just say Winty's book, Unreconciled, explains this perfectly as do many Indigenous authored books. Land Back is a movement that could save the planet from climate change created by colonialism and corporate uh, profit sharing, but it would also be understanding a treaty partnership part of meaningful reconciliation and honoring global initiatives like the United Nation Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I'm speaking to you on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoots um, south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Gainai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands were recently signed as Treaty 7 in 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Good Stoney, Chiniki, and Bearspaw Nations of the Stoney, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across the entire Americas as the keepers of these lands. It's the non-Indigenous who are supposed to be treaty partners with the government signing on their behalf who have accountability in this concept of treaty and still don't understand that because it's not taught in Canadian schools nationally. Anyway, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Giving a review helps whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel. You can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts. And there's tons of stuff on social media that I give. And I'm not funded. I have zero funding from any of these government initiatives. So again, just think about that. If you legitimately want to hear an Indigenous woman's voice, maybe you should consider donating. Anyway, I'm really grateful to have a guest with me today. And I will let her uh, introduce herself in her way. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, this is Kieran McKay. I am here today uh, because I was so nervous and I would say a little brave reaching out to you through Instagram. I've been following you for a while. I've also started my own podcast journey 
and I really appreciate how you share your voice on the platform that you've created for yourself. And like you, I'm sort of in a similar path and a journey. And so being here today, two women of color, being able to talk about how our journey's going, what do we need more of, what do we need less of? I'm like, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited to be here. So my kids had Halloween jitters and I had, oh my gosh, I'm going to record Michelle jitters. So, oh my goodness. Well, I'm really not that cool, actually, not even in the slightest. So I really appreciate that. But that bigger picture that, um, oh, and I have my family to back me up on that. Like there's, there's no, they keep me very humble. So, you know, I'm just grateful to have you here. And and you, you said that you identify as a woman of color. Do you want to tell us a bit about your background? Yeah, so I am Punjabi. I was uh, born and raised in Canada, out in uh, BC, so between Richmond and Surrey, British Columbia. Uh, so I'm sick Punjabi. Uh, my parents are the real story that I am a child of immigrant parents. And I think that's probably how I would like to first introduce myself, uh, which wasn't always the case. I'm just entering the 40s. My kids are growing up. I have a lot of space that I've created for myself in the last couple of years to figure out my own roots, where I come from. Uh, and I did a lot of neglecting over the years. So I'm trying to earn back um, where I come from. And so I, I like to start with giving my parents the credit. They they did all the hard work. My grandparents, they all you know worked very hard to get to this country. Uh, to only experience the things that they had to go through and, you know, be told over and over to quiet their voice. And uh, because of all of them and continuing to work in the way that they did, kids like myself are able to have our own podcast show show called Middle Fingers Up and talk a little bit more about how to do some of that inner uh, child healing um, when we come from immigrant parents, because there's a lot of a lot of things that I didn't know. Uh, a lot of ways that I identified that were actually harming me and my people. And I'm just in a place right now where I'm compassion, compassionately being curious about uh, what was that all about and what do I need to own in, in my own story? So, yeah. Oh, unpacking racism, fun times. I've been doing that since I've had my daughter because the last thing I want to do is give her more intergenerational trauma of suppressed racism. And, um, and I, I'll, I'll share with you, my stepmom is from Austria. She was born in Austria and her family immigrated here. They had originally immigrated to um, Australia and um, her, so I guess my auntie, my stepmant, um, she's like 10 years difference between my stepmom and uh, she had some health issue that they went back to Austria to get proper care for. And then they had my stepmom there and then they came to Canada and uh, yeah, so that that's a bit of their story, but because they had such strong um, Austrian accents and really broken English, they weren't treated well, even though they're white. So um, it's been interesting kind of unpacking all of that, but then regardless, um, we don't talk about the fact that there's so much anti-Indigenous bias in our family, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I actually met uh, Wab Rice last night and like because he he's wrote three books now and I I was asking him about that because if there was a book I was going to write it would be uh settler colonial racism and how it affects like person uh interpersonal relationships because it like it it hurts it sucks I want to celebrate um you know people in my life but I find that that racism prevents it 
and the lack of understanding from my family who I is white, like the white side, there's no unpacking racism at all. And so that makes it really hard for me when I experience racism and I tell them that, and then they literally get mad at me for experiencing racism. So it, it's, um, it's a conversation to have about how harmful, you know, we're told to act a certain way. And I thought I did for, you know, 30 years and um, go to the hospital, have my daughter and the way I was treated, I, I experienced systemic racism in the strongest ways I've ever experienced systemic racism. And now, of course, unpacking racism, you get to really go like, oh, God, that was racist. That was racist. That was racist. I just thought people treated each other so poorly. And I still have that mentality that we're just in Alberta and everybody treats everybody like they're nothing and, and garbage. Because I do see that. Like I see white people treating white people so poorly. I watch the conservatives go after Ed Stelmack for not being the right kind of white for being Ukrainian instead of just uh, British white. Right. So like to me, like Albertans are just like the most miserable, horrible people that just treat everyone like crap all the time. But when you start unpacking it and realize, oh, this is sexism, this is racism, this is um, so much bigger, and we don't talk about it. We just pretend like that's not a real thing. So I'd love to hear a little bit more from your point of view about like what led you on this road of anti-racism. Yeah, like I, I just, I really appreciate what you shared uh, because I feel very safe to be here and have this conversation with you. And I think, I think that's sort of what I'm doing is finding my own safety. And I hear you talk about that. I, I hear how you share that on your platform with social media. And I think that's the key that goes back to basic needs that all humans have a right to. And, um, you know, growing up in British Columbia and Surrey in particular, there are streets in Surrey that are written in my language from, you know, Punjabi, and uh, there's a big population of Punjabi Sikh um, people. And so it, we, it's funny, where you come from, you have different stories, like we experienced growing up a bit different, there was always racism. Uh, I just felt when I moved to Alberta, when my husband and I were together over 20 years ago, we moved here, I thought, oh, it's a different kind of racism. And then I started to think, oh, I'd rather just deal with what I was dealing with back home because mm -hmm. I can, I still feel like I have a say in power and there's a lot of my people around to back me up. Uh, whereas here, you know, my husband's also white. My kids are biracial. And so you you grow up thinking all sorts of things. And I, this is where I, I'm trying to help on, you know, with middle fingers up is all about what do we want to stand up to, take a, take a hard stand to. And mm -hmm. for me, one of the things is figuring out who we are and where we come from. Our childhood shapes us, our trauma shapes us, our upbringings, our siblings, everything that we grow up with shapes us, whether you want to say that's good, bad, or ugly. And eventually we get to this age. And I think in our forties, literally our brain is developed the way it's supposed to be now for me to actually have some insight and look back and think, okay, I gotta be a compassionate with myself. Like I, I had, I always talk about on, on, on my podcast, I had this white girl complex. Uh, it was like, if you can't beat them, join them. Yep. So 
you know, I liked the white guys. I wanted the white girl life. I wanted the Western life, essentially. And and even though I was born and raised in Canada, my household was very influenced by Eastern values, to which today I'm so, so grateful for. Um, but growing up, I hated my my people because I felt like they were doing me wrong by protecting me in the way they were. And I should have I should have been brought up like a Western girl. I didn't belong. You know, you're like you're trying to find where do I fit in? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, today my husband and I are having like really not easy, but life affecting conversations um, after reading some of our own books and and learning about the role that settlers play in our lives, the role that in responsibility I also has, have as a woman of color where I have to realize this isn't just about me anymore. This is about the next generation. And there's there's a lot of forgiveness that we have to sort of work, you know, from the past to, to move forward. And the sad thing, Michelle, though, is that there's a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants that don't even realize their day-to-day interactions are by people with so much power and the things that they've been left and with in a conversation it's like this quiet survival um mm-hmm. that you know you're you, you're you've been interrogated by someone of, that isn't of color someone with authority whether it's at work a neighbor someone you think you can rely on and then you can't figure out why do I keep walking away with this feeling like I did something wrong I offended someone I said something wrong and we never get to go through what was the thing that made us feel terrible. Like we we focus on protecting and caring for the other people. So then we're perpetuating it too, right? Yeah. And now that I'm in my 40s, just reading a little bit more and understanding if you have to know where the story starts. And a lot of us start in the middle. And I'm I'm just trying to get to the beginning of where did it all start? Where, yeah, how how did the British Empire impact India actually, right? Yeah how did that impact us here and now what's our role what's our role moving forward and and how how do we want to like you know be humans together but also acknowledge um i'm not okay with quiet survival anymore and i'm not i'm not going to allow myself to do that anymore where i'm in a conversation with friends and i think uh you know we used to have this funny thing my colleagues used to say but you're so pretty you're just so pretty, Kieran. And I used to be like, yeah, I'm so pretty. Yeah, I'm so pretty. Thank you. You know, like I, I started to play this role. Yeah. Um, And then you would feel like, I don't really understand what they're saying. So then they they would say, you don't really get what we're saying, right? You don't get it. It's just those day-to-day interactions that you are left with feeling like you're nobody. And so now this next, next you know, journey is about figuring out no I am a somebody, but who is that somebody? Yeah. Um, you talked about pretty. You know, um, I was raised to Western beauty standards as well. So um, it was interesting to me to hear you say that because I've been really trying to unpack Western beauty standards and why it is that I don't fit within them and why I uh, like how to navigate that. And ironically, because I, I really do advocate for 2SLGBTQ, um, it really is looking at toxic masculinity. That's really what that movement is about. And I know that's why people hate it so much because it's like they like the standard quo of toxic men objectifying women, of object- objectifying people, and you fitting in a very small box of Western beauty standards. And when you are like rejecting that, 
they're threatened and scared and don't know how to handle that. And I didn't realize that that's what I was placating to as well. So, yeah. you know, trying to find my own way. Um, I just noticed that I had, um, I was scratching and I, I was looking at my tattoos. I was raised, you know, only dirty people have tattoos, only bikers, only criminals have tattoos. And then when I got older and we had some of our Indigenous artists talking about the meaning of Indigenous tattoos and how that they were, they're, they're almost like a trophy that you get in the sense that once you you go through a hurdle, once you understand maybe sundown scars, you know, these are, are things to be proud of. And we used to showcase them to the new settlers to be like, oh, look at me. I, um, you know, a sun dancer, I have all these scars or I have look at all my tattoos. This means that I've gone through this many different journeys. And of course, settlers who are so vastly racist and anti-Indigenous were like these savages. Look at what they do to themselves. So uh, that that Western Christian um, imposed way of life really outlawed who we were as people as as you know if we tattooed each other if we had scars and now we cover them up and we hide them from settlers because they can't understand and they have so much anti-indigenous bias and they still see us as savage that we can't even have a meaningful conversation there right about about what this means so I'm just going to give a, a shout out to Christy Belcourt. She has a, a whole book on Indigenous tattoos, which you can find at most libraries. So for folks who are interested in learning more, but if you are non-Indigenous and you take an a Indigenous tattoo, we will fucking go after you relentlessly <laughs> for trying to appropriate our culture. And, uh, you know, and I come from, like you and I are very similar in age. So I remember when people... Um, our toxic men, white men, were all getting tri tribal tattoos around their arms, you know, and and uh, and doing that. So, like, the, there's a like lot to really unpack written in there. Hindi and J Japanese, and well, yep. I, but that's just it. Like, you know, this one of those books that Carrie and I have been audiobooking and reading, and I've been talking about it in some of our episodes. It's by Ruby Hamad. You may have heard of it, White Scars, Brown Tears, and this book is something that I wish all of our immigrant parents uh, can read or have read to, or, you know, I, I know it comes in different languages too, because it really helps them feel validated, I feel, in the sense of, like you said, where some of these things come from. Like when the settlers came to many of our, you know, third, quote unquote, third world countries, uh, there was always this, this description of, the exotic women so whether you're black you were asian you were indigenous you were brown there was this exotic thing attached to you and you were meant to be a sexual pleaser uh, because you were different and so you get you get labeled this somebody comes to your home and says you're some sexual woman that you know you're doing it to us it's you that's making me want to take you down here and assault you um, that's that when I was reading this book and my husband and I were like, oh my God, like on one hand, you know, we call it the red car theory. Soon as you think of or buy a red car, when you're driving around, all you see are red cars. But before you bought the red car, you probably never saw one on the road. You thought, oh yeah, that's why I want a red car. And it's like when you're when you start to take time for yourself and read or have dark conversations, deep conversations 
your your world is opening in a way that sometimes now all I see are red cars everywhere I go or when when I'm talking to certain friends and family that love me I don't know how to say to them every day all day that right there uh-uh that right there mm, not helpful because then I'm the aggressor then I'm the bad like Kieran we're just trying to have a conversation with you you know one time I had a friend say to me you're the most beautiful brown girl in the room <laughs> So when you when you a hot white girl, what do you say to her? Or do you say that's the hottest white chick in the room? Right. You know, like let's just like it's so interesting, right? Because I have a you created a space for me, and now I have to be really thankful for that space you created. And and I, I'm just trying to flip the 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 script for myself. Is I am grateful, but I'm grateful to my family for doing the work they did to bring me here. Yeah. And I will I will take that gratefulness now that I, I was giving to the wrong people and, and making sure that my family knows, like, I, I appreciate what they all sacrificed to get us here. And the other thing now that I'm going to work on is in my own home, like, okay, so how do we, how do we walk away from these situations? Um, how do we, how do we mention these conversations? How do we bring these things up? Because then we start talking about this whole uh, bystander thing, you know? Yep. And I, I don't know, like maybe you have some strategies for that, but like I have a story if I can share it. Please. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. two stories. Both of these stories have to do with young people on a school bus and one in a bar with adults. And, you know, the details don't matter. At the end of the day, it's like what we're so afraid of as grownups, as adults, as the people before us with with protecting the wrong kind of stuff. Uh, we are passing this on to the other generations. And I always say this next generation, I have so much hope and faith for because they're doing things in a very different way than I did. So I, I have a lot of respect for the younger folks. Uh, however, you know, my youngest is nine. They're on the school bus. They get into this altercation. Nobody helps, not the school bus driver, probably busy, other kids. I get it, all sorts of things. But I think we're teaching people to stop for and look the other way uh, when we get uncomfortable. And the, the problem is we're looking away at the wrong part of the discomfort. Mm. So I have, a, I have a beautiful sister who went away on a trip recently with her husband and two best friends. They went to Nashville and happened to be a group of people from Abbotsford, BC, as well as Calgary, Alberta. And the Calgary, Alberta people did not make us look good. Uh, they, the guy singles my sister out. She's the only person of color in our group that's there, in her group that's there, and just starts going at her. Like, Calgary's great if you're conservative, if you're right-winged. Uh, he, he mentioned other words that my sister right away was like, oh, I don't feel comfortable in this conversation. Nope. Uh, so she just said, good for you and tried to move on. And then he wouldn't let her stop. Then he kept going on and on and on. And then finally, my sister said to him, well, I'm family out there. And they don't, they don't necessarily agree with everything you're saying. And then he started to aggressively yell in her face. I'm not racist. And, you know, it, it got, it escalated. His friend kept coming up to my sister and asking her stereotypical questions. Like, why do your people always have so much milk and butter? Why, why do your people, what's, what's with you and your husband? How does this interracial thing work? 
only my sister was getting harassed. But the problem, Michelle, that that, you know, with bystanders, that's what we're talking about is no one in her party knew what to do. Like no one in her immediate group did anything. Um, yeah. And doing nothing is doing something. Well, yeah, so, it's that conversation about if you're at a table and one person is an identical Nazi, like then you're at a table filled with Nazis because you you should never tolerate a Nazi, right? But now we're talking about the same thing where to my opinion, he was a Nazi treating that uh, your sister poorly. And then because nobody did anything, it became a table full of Nazis and totally unsafe for your sister. And, um, you know, that that is she, the, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm, this is my, I'm working on not, not interrupting as a, as a podcaster. So I, I apologize. I'm doing it to you now. So don't be, don't be, we're, we're, I can tell we're bouncing off each other and I love that. So, you know, and, and that's the experience. real problem. Yeah, yeah, that's the real problem with uh, bystanders doing absolutely nothing. And I mean, that is commonplace in on the sea train. So for example, I wear ribbon skirts a lot. And um, I have to put my ribbon skirt in my purse and not wear it. Because when I do, nine times out of 10, I'm going to get um, treated poorly by somebody somewhere. And um, nobody will do a damn thing. Nobody. Um, I'll tell you a story of so at the end of every one of my podcasts, I have like tips and tricks on bystander intervention from the American uh, Friends Service Committee. And a lot of folks just like they don't even read it. So like, especially if you are a person like everyone should read it. So anyway, from that, I learned um, and I'll give you an example. I was on the sea train dressed in a beautiful ribbon skirt and there was a homeless person who visibly indigenous um, sleeping on the on the bench. And some lady who happened to be brown was just. And then she took out her phone and she started recording. So I stood in front of her and the recording and, um, you know, and I looked over and she was like, why don't you help your people? you know, really aggressively rude in a room full of people that did absolutely nothing. So like everyone was okay with some, you know, bigoted anti-Indigenous racist who happened to be brown taking video of a homeless person who happened to be Indigenous. And and I mean, you know, and, and I stood in front of them and nobody came to my aid. And then she started attacking me with me and my people and sell sorts of racial tropes and I just stood there and continued it and continued it. And I just thought, you know, she may be some right wing person trying to get clicks and views. So I just made, I just maintained my composure and, and, you know, tried to say things back in the sense that like educate her and, and she obviously not willing to hear it, willing to continue. And then finally she gets off or I got off one or the other. But the point was, was that, you know, zero people intervened and had other people stood with me and had a conversation with me and just pretended like she wasn't there and introduced themselves. Um, women usually do this to women where it's like you can run up to a woman and they'll usually be like, oh, hi, Laura, I'm so glad you're here. Give each other a hug, even if they're perfect strangers, because Mike down the corner is treating Laura poorly and they'll usually like women will usually back up women. But here was a, a brown woman mistreating an indigenous homeless person, then mistreating an indigenous woman willing to stand between that. 
and um you know nobody did or said anything so like to me again train full of nazis <laughs> right like a, you're all nazis to totally. me buddy. and i think i think the issue though is like the the person that's behaving irrationally i think you can't rationalize with an irrational person and my my i said to my sister too like that man like you know we we can only wish him well, but he's not gonna have an aha moment. If he does, good for him one day. To me, it's those the folks, yeah, that sit around there. And I think we all have fight, you know, fight, uh, flight, freeze, all that. We have to think of our own safety. But sometimes I just feel like even when it's your own group of people with you, that night I would not have expected anyone else in that bar, but the three people she walked in with to know how to stand up for her. She had to beg her group, her husband, these people to, to, to stop this guy because everybody thought she started it. And I think I think that's that's sometimes where I struggle is it's it's not the outwardly racist that I, I care to put so much energy towards because I, you know, like you're already hurting as a person. Um it's the ones that have this unconscious bias and we all have unconscious biases. I know I do too. And my hope is that we can all encourage each other to start to ask what part of that train uh, situation or at the bar, what part of that whole thing made me stop? Where did I get uncomfortable? Because sometimes again, we quiet the wrong part of the discomfort. People were telling my sister to shut up and they should have been telling that guy you know, the bar people should have said, we don't want you here. You're not welcome here, man. But we, you know, we were not, we're not there yet. And I just, I think when our friends and our family um, don't recognize their privilege in, in their situations or in our conversations, I think that's the disheartening part, which is uh, taking a workshop or a course, reading a book are great starts. Uh, how many people of color are we talking to? Are we directly having conversations um not getting mad at the person of color because they brought up an uncomfortable situation you know like I just I feel I feel for you I feel for I feel for that homeless per indigenous person on the bus I also feel for that woman sitting there because she's also a person of color and you're you know like we we get pinned uh especially women of color we are so bad at uh, not standing up for each other. We get pinned by the whole white feminism thing that that happens. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot of learning that, uh, you know, for me, all of this conversation today isn't about what everyone else needs to do. Honestly, it's just about what I'm starting to see. I have a lot of work to do. Um, but I, I want to encourage folks that experience these day to day moments of discrimination to start talking because if we don't do it, um, we keep giving that power. And somebody taught me the other day, it's not visible minorities. We're global majorities. So yeah, we, and that's right? it. But we're in a society that really teaches white supremacy as the default. So that's why nobody stood up and, and labeled your sister as the problem. And it's the same reason why I'm, I'm always labeled the problem. Um, you know, I've experienced discrimination. I, I tried to go to the Red Deer Radisson. And there was a brown manager that just was absolutely committed to me not going there, even though we had paid on the 
what is a Wikipedia or not uh, Expedia like it was already prepaid he would not give us a room because of me and um you know and then and did that well I'm brown so I can't be racist not recognizing he can actually perpetuate anti-indigenous bias and of course the Radisson not recognizing he can per um, participate in anti-indigenous bias so you know for me it's um I, I talk about the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because there's one on economics, one on business, one on um, uh, call to action 57 is all public servants taking anti-racism training and Indigenous education. And, you know, unfortunately, you can't force people to do it. You know, you can't force people to stop being racist. You can't force people to quit being misogynistic. Like it is something they have to willfully try to do. And it's really unfortunate because I, I know I've written off family members because I know they will never change. They don't want to change. They would rather not have me in their life than to change. And it's and that is the hardest part about being a biracial uh, child is that you have family members that will reject you because of your race and you have family members not willing to change because they're they get all the privilege so it's um it's a really painful conversation which is why like i wish there were more books on this and especially as canadians we always do this well we're not as bad as the states and it's like yes we are we are so bad but you just don't want to see it right so like it, it's a really hard conversation to have with in Canada. Yeah, it's like I, I feel it's comparing ourselves to someone that's not doing the, that great themselves to make ourselves feel better is just you know like we all do that. You know, well, you know, I look okay. I I dress this way or I did that thing. I worked out to you know whatever it is to make ourselves feel better inside voice. Um, but like, don't we want to do better? Because I don't know, as a child of immigrant parents, I feel like we know better and we should want to do better. Right. For, that's, that's how I look at it. I grew up with trauma. I grew up with abuse. I grew up with addiction. I grew up with all this stuff that now I could totally introduce all this to my kids. Hopefully they feel that I'm not. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, we want to we want to do better, though. And there is a way to do that. And it just starts within ourselves of being curious and asking ourselves, yeah, it doesn't matter if, if I'm brown and or my husband's white. It's it's OK. Here's our color now. What, what does that mean in this house? And, you know, he and I have also talked about, too. He's he's had it rough in the last little while. <laughs> Yeah, my husband as well. Yeah, tell me about your husband. Sorry? Tell me about your husband, and I'll tell you about mine. Well, he grew up in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. So he's a PA boy, and he moved to BC when he was in his early 20s. He went traveling for a few months to New Zealand, and then he thought, oh, I don't want to go back to my home. I think I need to go back to lush greenery. So he picked Vancouver, and, you know, we met too not too long after that, when I probably about 22 years ago now, and we started dating. We've been together forever, and the lovely thing about him is that he he always said he didn't really come from customs and a culture. He came from good home values, just not particular rituals and customs. So he loved all of our customs and rituals, even our wedding. We did a sick wedding. He he wanted to do the turban. That was a little difficult for his family because it was 
a very uh something that a mom maybe never would expect her her little boy growing up in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan to one day grow up to wear, right? Like, you know, like in fairness to my mother-in-law. Uh, but they figured it out, you know, they we we realized we we have a lot more to gain as a family than to be upset. But what I loved, what I what I've appreciated about him that I think I owe him, owe him now is that there's been this patience, there's been a lot of curiosity, a lot of joining with my family. And, uh, and today, he's on this like wild journey as well, after Ruby's book, after Ruby Hamad's book, and us and us reading, he's like, holy crap, I didn't realize I do these things every day, or I do certain things. And I'm like, me too, man, me too. And I'm the woman of color in the car right now listening to this book. How do you think I feel? Well, Right. I'm helping our people. I'm not helping your people. I'm not helping any people either. We got to figure this out. So we, we've we had some really difficult conversations, just like dark conversations about we got to go revisit that situation 20 years ago or 10 years ago, because we want to make sure we're not moving forward with those things. Like I've grown, he's growing, he's, you know, we're we're both growing together. And like you said, having biracial kids from your own experience, you know, like, it it's great when they're little but as they get older and start forming their own identities like my oldest there has to be this balance between my husband and I and he's the white guy in the in the in the in the relationship you know what I mean like so he's also recognizing these things because the boys are also half of him but they're also half of me so how do we balance that so we don't have all the answers we're not perfect we're just saying we're figuring it out slowly but surely and anyone that wants to be part of those conversations please let us know if you want to teach us something that you're doing better than us let us know right you know what I mean like it's a it's a it's been a whirlwind of like oh my gosh <laughs> yeah no 100% no I, I so my husband and I have been together since I was 16 so it's been a minute and uh you know what's been interesting is seeing how many people reject me based on my indigeneity and him being willing to see it now. And, um, and he struggles even in, in a work situation because in Calgary, Alberta, in the energy industry, we all hate natives. Like that's just the bottom line. You hate the natives. So um, Indian residential school denialism has made it very difficult for him when it comes from his manager, you know, in, and that is rampant in Calgary, Alberta, because, you know, they vote conservative, they hate everybody. It's simple, right? You just, that's the standard, that's what you do. So um, so it's been a real struggle for him. And, uh, and also seeing that it's only safe for me to cut out family members when, you know, sometimes it's his family because they don't, they're not gonna change either, right? And that sucks, like it sucks because I, I want my daughter to have healthy relationships with extended family. But I also don't want to teach her. It's okay for people to put me down based on being Indigenous. It's okay for people to put you down based on your Indigeneity. It's okay for people to treat you poorly because of misogyny or homophobia. I'm not going to expose her to that. You know, she's going to get enough of that when she becomes an adult. The last thing, I'm not going to create an unsafe place for her as a child and have to unpack that trauma later, where it's going to be like, why did you allow that to happen? Because I'll tell you, if I could sit down and tell my parents a thing or two, it would be really negative. But at the same time, you can't educate people unwilling. You can't educate people that don't care. 
you can't educate people that are like, I like racism and I like my settler privilege and fuck you, stupid native. And worse, they like my my mom was um, in my family like this is where the root of all of the anti-Indigenous bias came from. They even labeled her schizophrenic. They labeled her crazy. They labeled her right to try to. Oh, is she oh doing OK? Like, is she OK? Insinuating she's a fucking mental nutcase when she isn't. And, and that, so I had to really unpack that. And now it's kind of being imposed on me where it's like, you know, if you're not a woman that just conforms with white supremacy, you're crazy. That That's just like standard. And especially if you're native, right? So like, I don't need to expose my daughter to that type of thinking. Um, she would never get there. Kind of back to what you said about, I have a lot of hope for the next generation. These kids consent to everything. Like, would you like a glass of water? Do you want me to go get that? Like they, to the point where it's like, holy cow. And like, I was um, at this book uh, reading last night and, you know, friend, people my age, we just hug each other. And I've been trying to get in the, hu- in the habit of consensual hugging because the younger generations, they just don't want hugs random given to them, right? So you have to consent to that. So like they're teaching me, frankly, more than more than I'm teaching them in some ways. I'm just trying to keep them safe until the world swallows them up. And so my hope is after she's done her education, we try to find a better place to go. I don't think there is a safe place in the in the globe, frankly. Because race, yeah, racial have to bring the safe you have to bring your safety with you almost, you know, like you yeah. have to figure out what is my safety. And that that comes down to what you know somebody t- taught me the other day in an interview that they t- someone taught them that confidence comes from what do I believe in and like really taking the time to figure out what are the values and the things that I stand by what's non-negotiable and to me like at the end of the day you're right Sa- safety there's no place is safe but I can be confident in that I'm going to do the best I can to protect myself. And, you know, the rest is I, I don't have control over. We used to teach our staff that when we, I used to work in a not-for-profit mental health facility for like 18 years, I left my job last year and uh, we had, we would get people at their worst, young people in, in most crisis situations, some with cognitive deficits. So you'd get violence and uh it it was part of what we would talk about is we can't guarantee safety anywhere we have to build that within ourselves um hopefully there's tools and people around to help us but we all know like that's not how it works phones come out people look the other way people people yeah you know have to think about themselves so i i i hear you but i agree with this this younger group it's it's like they when you talk about consent and all that great we have those you know we have boys and so we talk about that with them at home and uh it's so funny because culturally growing up you were taught we were taught by our parents you'd go to a family get together right and that's like 100 people your closest 100 family members at your uncle's house and some of them were not safe people some of them were abusive people and some of us knew who those people were uh but we were taught you have to go in the room and you have to hug everyone because if you don't then it's disrespectful and all these old customs and rituals and you grow up like I grew up hating hugging (laughs) so I I appreciate we're in a place now where we're like oh can I hug you because you're right you just 
automatically go to this place. And so I always start an interview with a guest. Usually it's a handshake. And then after having such this, in, you know, this intimate moment with them when they're leaving, can I hug you now? You know, and so they're like, oh, yeah, totally. It's like, yeah, we, we need to be asking these sorts of things. Um, you know, so ho hopefully the next generation will will teach us a little more and, and and help us. And I think that's the thing with bystanders. It's like, what do we do? We got to put the focus on the next generation. Yeah, Anyone 100%. from the past, you want to learn, you want to come along, great. Look, my parents are immigrants. And if they can learn and learn how, how racism affects them, whether they are the victim or the perpetrator, if they can figure that stuff out and understand what it's like to communicate with humans. Uh, I feel like many of us can. I, I don't like when we say, oh, they're the old generation and they don't know better. And it's like, I hope one day in the next 20 years when I'm the worst person in the world, someone will have that much, you know, like appreciation for me because I can be a raging C word. And so hopefully people will let me, you know what I mean? Like what, what's the old lady over there? That's like the, the meanest lady. Why don't we have to see her? But yeah. she's just like 60. So like for the next 30 years, people around her have to like pussyfoot and tiptoe. You know what I mean? Like, so I that's why I like you. the younger generation. Yeah, better. me too. Well, how do people uh, listen to your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? So uh, Middle Fingers Up. Uh, middle Fingers Up comes from when I didn't have anyone. I had my two middle fingers to help me stand up. And so you can find us, I think like you on all the platforms, we're everywhere, right? You're on Spotify. Uh, so am I, we're all there. And on Instagram uh, at MFU podcast, Instagram's probably for our generation, I would find the best social media place. I'm learning TikTok. I feel like I sold my soul, you know, like I had to join the other day. You're so, you're so good at this with your videos. Uh, and now your husband's going to be really mad because he has to edit six things I said in one sentence. But uh, you're so good at like just getting at your videos out there. I, I think too much because like I said to you, my voice is still shaky. I'm still trying to figure out after I post something like I just sometimes feel did I do that right? Was, did I offend someone? I worry about the wrong thing sometimes, you know, versus no, I, I have to think about the people that that are being impacted if we don't say something. Right. Is that yeah. like, is that, is that sort of how you, you yeah. get yourself out there? Cause sometimes you say things and I'm like, Michelle, thank you so much for saying that. I don't know if I could repeat it, but like, how did, how do you get there? How did you get there? I, I just like, once you start to understand oppression dynamics, like I can't think of a more marginalized group of people right now than queer Muslims trying to speak their truth. And ironically to me, because I, I talk about Two-Spirit and I talk about Indigenous peoples, like we actually have the exact same struggle of this imposed straight agenda based off of religion and based off of power, blah, 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 blah. And uh, like, yeah, it, I literally, I don't make anybody happy, right? Like, so the Muslims who are straight are mad at me. Uh, the white people who are trying to be in solidarity or like you're racist at, you know, like that they, they have a different idea of what racism actually is. So, you know, I just try to speak my truth and I make a ton of mistakes. Um, I've used the term crazy throughout this podcast, but I, I think I did it in a good way to try to talk about how uh, white supremacy uses mental health as a weapon. Right. Um, I, I have to train my, my, my ways so for example I wouldn't normally use it but I used it in that context and what I have to try to do is use terms like wild wow that's wild 
instead of that's crazy. But I know a lot of folks still use that terminology when it is dehumanizing to folks that have had a label, a mental health label in some capacity. So, um, you know, it's just trying to find the right words. Uh, Folks is such a old word, but at the same time, it's non-gendered. Right. And like I was as a secret that I was raised, you address everyone as sir and ma'am, everyone. And it took a long time to unprogram that in my head. And I still do it sometimes. So I, you know, I, I, I have to unprogram and that's what it is. It's unlearning and relearning and using terms that, you know, are safe, like folks and wild instead of crazy or he, she, right. Those, that type of thinking. So yeah, I don't know if I do it right. And a lot of people don't like what I got to say. And um, so I, I do delete a lot of comments. Like I know most influencers, you're not supposed to do that. But I, I delete block like just just all the time on all my social media media platforms. If people are dehumanizing, if they um, are putting me down because it's like, well, I get enough of people putting me down. I don't need you in my life. So um, for me, it, it's quite easy to block people. And like, for example, a lot of people who are from under other marginalized communities, if their mental health and their trauma is so um, being projected in such a negative way, there is no sense them being on my social media because either I'm triggering them because I do everything I talk about is so triggering to everybody, right? They, nobody's not triggered. You're, you're right. So that's why I have these ridiculous amounts of resources as well. <laughs> refreshing to hear that because you're right people are going to be people and you know somebody somebody very wise taught me uh in my earlier years at my job he was he, he was almost at retirement so he had quite a few years on me and he he was teaching me about ambition and he was teaching me how to maybe uh and you know what how to be a better leader because I was I was the leader of 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 the staff that I supervised he was teaching me how to be a better leader and he said, you know, six of us are going to stare at this one painting and we're all going to walk away with six different perceptions. Yeah. And that is one of the very few things in that time of my life that I, I really took that and held on to that because it's like opinion is not fact. Your perception and my perception aren't always going to be identical. So where do we where do we build, get the tools to build a bridge in between so we can still have the space for you to say, I don't support this. I don't believe in this. I mean, if you don't want to believe in humans, like uh, in general, like whatever that human looks and behaves and identifies as, and that's a different thing. I'm not talking about those extreme people. I'm sure. just talking about when things are a little new to us and we're like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, like parents that have never parented a child going through child developmental identity issues at 13, but now with all the different pronouns, that's a new thing for some parents. And it might take some a little longer to come along. The hope is that we're being curious and we're figuring out in the best interest with our child. But I know that there's people out there that aren't, you know, it's like shut her down. We're fearful. Let's hide it. We can't change the way things were. Uh, and, you know, it's okay. It's just a sad, lonely place, I think. And I, and I, I feel for those people that choose to live their life that way uh but like you it's there's hope when I when I get on social media I also have a choice what I want to follow what I want to read what I don't want to do and yeah. I don't have to love everything you do and you don't have to love everything the next person does but you know I I just want to say like I appreciate so much of how you put it out there and to me 
it it's like if I'm getting offended or if I'm feeling woo, uncomfortable by something you put out there, uh, then that's a great opportunity to lean in and explore. Like, what does that make me feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it because she's talking to me and I do those things? Is it because I don't know enough about this? What or whatever option C is, right? So I, I yeah. think like it's it's paving the way for many of us to be able to find our platforms. And and that's that's a lovely thing about being a digital creator today. There's lots of different ways to do that, right? I love that. Well, I really can't thank you enough for coming on the show and talking about the world from your point of view, because I want to have more anti-racism conversations like this. So I'm the one who's so grateful that you were willing to take the space and come on my podcast and vice versa. If, if this ends up on your podcast, then thank you for having me and, and having the space because like these are the conversations I think we need to have more of because like I really love those race to dinner conversations. <clears throat> but you you know, analyzing somebody's white supremacist racism isn't my cup of tea. I really want to talk to other folks about, you know, what our experience is actually like. And if folks who have that, you know, settler racism uh, can learn, awesome. But then we have a good barrier. <laughs> so we don't have to exactly, see their eye right? rolls. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you made a good point. So you, I would like your episode as we talked about you know, both of us sharing this, because I do think, you know, we always say over at Middle Fingers Up, these conversations are door openers. And some of us are just opening this door. Some of some folks like you have helped us open the door. Um, so one thing I love to do with you before we leave is on our podcast, we do a Middle Fingers Up segment. So I always invite my guests to use it as an opportunity to put their what do you want to stand up to? It could be something cute, like, my husband's editing, or it could be something a little bit more uh, meaningful either way. So I'd love for you to do the little segment with us before we wrap up. Yeah. I, I give two middle fingers to all of the teachers, all of the school trustees and all of the education systems, because they are the number one problem. They're also the number one solution. And they are so committed to being racist settlers that our children, your children, my children, other children are struggling and not graduating high school and not graduating universities because of their disgusting, gross racism. And the worst part is we're supposed to respect them. I think in the last 10 years, I have lost so much respect for the health institution, all doctors and nurses and paramedics who exhibit that racism, police, I was taught to go to them, but when I see what they do to our people, I can't. Um, education systems, like that, it's bad. And then the actual, you know, QT BIPOC that are in these systems and how poorly and awful they are treated by people who are like, oh my God, I'm so not racist. I'm so done. Two middle fingers. I, I will join you because my brother and sister and I, I mean, we have to find a way to laugh at some of our growing up, but we all were born and raised in Canada and every year in elementary school, guess what, where we, we started out in the little tiny ESL classroom because someone read our name and thought these guys over here. Uh, and we always say, listen, if we, if we didn't learn English, well, you could have been honest with us and told us that, but we know that it was all about, yeah, well, these guys over here and, all the little Asian kids, the little, it was the little black kids. And then there was all the brown kids. 
sitting in this little room and my brother always jokes like oh well we got candy out of it right and it's like it's it's just things you know you experience but you think that's normal you think well that's what they had to do and then you you find yourself lately I've been finding myself my kids are like I said biracial and so they they look more more Indian than they do white and so both have found themselves in trouble you know some of this is their own doing and some of this is just how schools decide to handle conflict between kids I'm like I don't know what we're doing there but uh I I've talked to the principal too like I'm like now my worry is that my oldest has you guys have um a potential he's bu building a reputation for this kid that's argumentative and whatnot and there are parts to him that I agree with you but my worry now is that every time there's a kid in trouble guess who gets a phone call I every do, time because he happened to be around there and unfortunately I've had to talk to him he's 12 and, and I've had to say I'm not I'm I can't guarantee this is what's happening but I, I can feel something and you you have to understand when you walk into rooms and when you put yourself in a situation that you're behaving poorly every single time you're going to be in it and you're going to be somehow connected to that or your name's going to come up and you, you know it's been it's it happened again at the beginning of the school year as well and so it's just because he's one of few kids that look a little different right and so 100%. i just i think we have to we have to you're right we have to do a lot more work but that system is so protected you can't even get in to offer a training with the school board yeah no nope. so many years working in mental health we tried to establish partnerships with the school board and you, you got to get to the top and there's very few that have the ability to get up there right so i yeah. i hear you i i will join you and put my middle fingers up to that too yeah a hundred percent and i wish our youth just if could give them one uh, piece of advice it's that um, you can never act perfect enough and that there is trauma in trying to act perfect enough and it's actually racism perpetuating that trauma so you know you're enough and these stupid institutions and these stupid white people who are committed to hating you that's on them not you and for settlers that are people of color that are trying to be the um, immigrant um, perfect immigrant you know, they're perpetuating the same white supremacy on these kids too. So I just wish uh, there were more kids that understood that, you know, one day you will finish the system and it is racist, but once you're done it, you're, you're, you know, you can move on to the workforce. So I just feel really bad for any QT BIPOC in the, in the country of Canada, because they are being attacked as adults, as children, and we just have to support each other and love each other. And as parents, create that safe space for them because the world ain't going to do it for us. That's for sure. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast and letting me be on yours. It's so appreciated. Um, I am going to give some resources for folks who are interested. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, I think that if folks are interested in the kind of conversations that we've started having in our home, I there's two books that I, my siblings and I have been finding really helpful. Uh, one I already referenced, and that's Ruby Hamad's uh, White Scars, Brown Tears, talks a lot about how uh, toxic masculinity, the white man's help with creating, uh, you know, feminism and, and just the impact that white feminism has on the sisterhood of all of us women, you know, we should be in the same category and how do we get there? 
Uh, and I also would uh, recommend if folks haven't gotten into white fragility, I think it's a Robin D'Angelo does a very kind job reaching out to her own race and saying sometimes these sorts of unconscious biases might create, uh, I think she helps put language behind the feeling that that white people feel uh, when they're being, you know, asked to not say something or being challenged. So two, two books that have been really, really eye-opening for us, uh, I would love to add those too, so. Yeah. Right on. White Fragility. I know a lot of um, uh, Black authors hate it because it's like too simple. But the truth is, I needed it. You know, as a person of color, I needed to figure it out, too. And uh, she took this um, term, uh, racial battle fatigue, from these profs in uh, Chicago, I actually called them and I talked to them and I said, as a native, is it okay for me to use that terminology? And they're like, yeah, you can use that terminology. So, um, you know, I, I'm grateful for that book. It changed me as well. It gave me words to explain to white people, but at the same time, I am realizing it's not my job. If, if they are committed to being racist, you go give her, be a racist over there. I'm going to live my life here that's trying to create a safer space for Indigenous, for for everybody, um, not just, uh, and, and if people who are white can't see their privilege, like that, that's really not my problem. <laughs> that's a them problem, not a me You're problem. They're right. <laughs> not ready yet, right? And I found myself in many situations where I wish I was ready and I wasn't. And, and I just want to go back to that comment about the book. It is simple. And I think that is why it's helpful because when you are you know, the, the mask is being taken off. It's a scary thing. And I, I think a lot of people of color would say, we've never been able, we've never been given the okay to uh, t take what we, we go through in a way that's just simple or, uh, you know, not as intense, like, you know, and I think I know what, what they're saying, like, yeah, we, what, what people of color experience through racism is, is rough. It's hard, but like, again, don't we want to do something better? And, and I don't know, as a woman of color, like I want to come out this in a way where, um, maybe people will want to be better and I don't want to come out and doing it in a hateful way. Uh, because there are people out there that are reading these books and, and are talking to people and are trying. And I think it's just trial and error. It's, it's how many, how many years in the making, and we're not going to get it in the next hundred, as much as we want to, it's going to take some time. Uh, so I think we have to just have some patience with that. So yes, it's a simple book, but I think that you're right. That is why it, uh, it can be eye opening and helpful for folks. It's validation. Yep. You know, yeah, that's I really what it is. And in order too. to want to make a change, you need, you need, you need validation. So, right. Yeah. Well, thank you again for coming on and letting yeah. me be on yours. So appreciated. I appreciate it. I, I hope you're okay with me reaching out for advice down the way from like, ah, help me here. Cause I, like I said, I really, really love what you're doing. So thank you. Oh, vice versa. Right on. All right. Thanks for being on the show. I'm going to do the resources now. So just a reminder here in Calgary, we're going to have the uh, Trans Day of Remembrance on November 19th. Uh, really excited for that. I'm just putting together the book list for 2027 or 2020, <laughs> 2024. Um, but if you are interested, we are doing the uh, our report to guide the implementation of the National Action Plan on Violence Against Women and Gendered Violence for both November and December, it's 400 pages. So we'll do the uh, first 200 and then the next 200. Um, January, we're gonna be doing Sean Carlton's book, um, 
So I might do Making Space for Indigenous Feminism, edited by Joyce Green, that I've been talking about for February. I just haven't figured it out quite yet. Uh, the Reconciliation Action Group has been looking for people to help us, and um, I'm very disappointed with the amount of people that actually sign up and want to do any of the work. Uh, worse, we've had people come, learn how to do it, and then leave and then not use that energy back with us. So it's been really interesting um, having a group like this, trying to do good work. And we're talking actually about doing a protest here at one of these institutions, educational institutions, because of how they've treated one of our Indigenous families. Anyway, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and cultural safety training, cultural face first aid in all of them, to try to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities and 2SLGBTQ to speak, according to the 2023 Quality of Life Report by the Calgary Foundation, 88% of racialized Calgarians feel uncomfortable or out of place because of their religion, ethnicity, skin color, culture, language, accent, gender, or sexual orientation, which is up from 75% a year ago. 84% um, of racialized Canadians believe that racism exists, with 66% of non-racialized Calgarians not believing that, um, or I guess believing that racism exists. So 34% uh, don't even think that racism exists in Calgary. Anyway, thank you to author Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca of what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Their work with those cultural action tools um, help support Indigenous work like that as part of the reconciliation and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to repeat and highlight them here. So internalized racism and lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. And you're seeing that very clearly right now uh, with Buffy St. Marie you're seeing Indigenous attacking other Indigenous because again, we're not focused on internalized racism and lateral violence. We're too busy fighting with each other. So all that energy that's defending or going after Buffy St. Marie, that if that was better utilized, then we might be having better, more constructive conversations. But either or, this was brought on thanks to racism. Had settlers not come here and brought all this awful racism, we wouldn't be in this mess. So if you go to racialequitytools.org, there's a ton of resource files by Donna Bevins, what is internalized racism and give her all your money because she's doing the good work and writing it out for folks like me to go back and reference. Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee, afsc.org. You know, there's resources on what to do. So if you're a white person, not sure what to do, you can pretend that freeze is the proper response or you can try, try to do some of these things that you've been taught. We all know there's driver training, first aid training, do the work on bystander intervention. You have all the power and privilege to do so. Anybody who follows me on my social media, there is an anti-racism organizational league from the city of Calgary giving a committee presentation on the journey of becoming an anti-racism leader. Why don't you watch that YouTube video? What is stopping you? Again, this is about being a leader in anti-racism, not a, oh my God, I just said that. <laughs> um, YYC, Black Lives Matter activists, Taylor McNally and Dora Nofor are being legally targeted 
please donate to them directly and go to Stop the Stack uh, YYC. That is helping direct and give information about how these um, legal charges are actually purposely done in order to shut up uh, BIPOC people. And uh, anyway, Indigenous have been talking about these issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions, inquiries, public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. So here's the thing. If you guys are Canadian, I know what you're doing. You are purposely voting in the conservatives or voting in another racist so that you can disregard our issues and trauma. So you are perpetuating racism. And I, I'm just gonna change that as part of my script because I know you're doing it on purpose. So you have a choice, make changes or continue being racist, vote in racist. That's what you're telling me. I'm seeing numbers <clears throat> for the conservative party who are outright uh, racist and you're, you're, you're leaning towards that. I don't know what to say folks. So gender equity plus um, violence prevention programs, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, human rights from um, migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that person or party can directly, well, will ne negatively impact equity demanding folks who deserve this. Um, demand they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports from child welfare reform, violence prevention, reports and now 231 calls to justice on the national inquiry on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Provincially, we have the 113 pathways to justice. So, you know, we have the premier's council on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls doing absolutely nothing. Municipally, we have the white goose flying report not doing enough. You know, denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. We are experiencing extreme racism in every single institution, society, media with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they have zero business being in a leadership position. Should be understood by everybody, parties, politicians, community organizations, sports clubs. If I can't go to a community association and smudge, y'all being racist towards me. Google articles on how non-Indigenous Canadians can become allies. Stephanie Harp and I had an emergency podcast uh, last December in the hopes that our allies would do more. Anyway, we were encouraging folks then to write and I didn't get any feedback from anyone. So that shows me people listen, but they still don't act. So it, it is really discouraging to know that. Um, Sign up at aboriginalalert.ca to find out missing people who happen to be Indigenous in your area. You can also uh, download the Missing Children Society of Canada app. Um, there a, was a wonderful statement from womenshomelessness.ca about the urgent action to protect the lives of Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit and gender diverse people experiencing homelessness, being how none of your mayors or counselors know clearly you're not writing them to let them know um we had the uh stats come out for the amount of overdoses that are happening in this drug poisoning and 
Alberta remains the highest with new records being set. If you know anyone using substances, please don't use alone. If you are using alone, contact the National Overdose Response Service at 1-888-688-NORS for support. There's also a, a Brave and Doors app, the Lifeguard app, and just create a safety plan. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talk about today, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 855-242-3310. It's 24-7, seven, seven days a week. You can go to their website, hopeforwellness.ca. Also, if related to more missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. Again, uh, Indian Residential School Survivor Hotline, 866-925-4419. The Native Youth Crisis Hotline is 877-209-1266. For non-Indigenous, there are usually distress center lines in your area, a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566, or you can text at 45645, or you can go to their website, crisisservicescanada.ca, and the Kids Help Phone, 1-800-668-6868. Following our two SLGBTQ crisis supports that are available in most areas across Canada, You can go to lifevoice.ca. You can call the Trans Lifeline at 877-330-6366. Or for youth, thanks to the Trevor Project, 866-844-7386. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. This is self-care, how I take my power back. Um, I started this podcast because there is not proper media representation in any capacity out there. some of the stuff that's still through a CBC or an APTN is still filtered with uh, money from the very people that are still oppressing us. So I started this in the hopes that I would just speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting um, statements and questions by people who don't care. Um, People who don't understand, like we are constantly surveilled as indigenous people. Um, in every aspect of every institution, our protests, our vigils, our rights. I and many others share info on microaggressions daily, so it's just unacceptable. Learn about being trauma-informed. Like, um, you know, I I was talking to a, a friend of mine, and, you know, they were really upset about the way a certain person was attacking me, and I just said, but that's coming from a place of trauma. Like, I, I'm not mad at them. I'll never be mad at them. And it's important if people don't understand what being in trauma-informed is. Anyway, folks like me are dealing with internalized racism, gatekeeping, folks that survive off of the status quo, folks who are so in their trauma, they stop people from doing the good work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for me, Indigenous people, Black people, folks with disabilities, QT BIPOC in general, and more. Masi Cho to my ancestors. I'm even lucky enough to be here. Thanks to my granny, my mom is what strength looks like through your examples. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is. Um, I want to say thank you to my husband for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, childhood friend, father of our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, um, we are so honored and we get to 
daily learn from you. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my family, my daughter, will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present-day issues. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. For those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. And I just want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. And my beautiful cousin would reply, or you'd be in my dish. Thank you, folks, for listening.